The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. Welcome to our continuing series on the four Brahma Viharas. And um, some of you know that last month we uh, spent some time talking about loving kindness. And this month, the focus shifts to compassion, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment, but first I want to share with you a couple of, um, a couple of quotes. Um, the first one is from Martin Luther King, who said, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. And then the second part to this intro is a question. What does it take to make a difference for yourself or for the world? And I love this quote by the Dalai Lama. If you think that you're too small to make a difference, try sleeping with a mosquito. (laughs) So as you listen to the talk tonight, Consider what might be the mutuality and what might be the mosquito. And then a little story. Very short. Moving from winter to spring, maybe you can appreciate some elements here. This writer says... I spent part of last winter staring at a potted amaryllis bulb that someone had given me for Christmas. I was firmly in the grip of seasonal affective disorder. You know what that is? Sad. Okay. And this thing seemed in similar straits. It was a typical watched pot. Nothing stirred. Then one day, a pert green spatula extruded, and then another The longer it sat there growing, the more baffled I felt. So, an inert lump of vegetal matter, plus dirt, plus water, plus light, plus what? A lattice of infomolecules, self-emergent properties of sufficiently complex matter, and then this slow-motion kerplow of impossible creativity. I thought of Dylan Thomas's line, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower. What for- Dylan Thomas's line, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower. What force and what was nature thinking, making it so unnecessarily gorgeous? I wanted to call friends to rhapsodize about it, to tag it as forensic evidence of some divine eminence. Sometimes I almost caught it looking back at me, one living thing to another.
also the Brahma Viharas. Uh, Brahma Vihara, just as a reminder, in case you have forgotten, is the the Pali word, the Buddhist name for the set of four emotional states or sublime attitudes, they're sometimes called, or even the four immeasurables, which is kind of an interesting term. The word Brahma is associated with divinity, and Vihara means dwelling place. So classic Buddhist texts translate the term Brahma Viharas as divine abodes. And the first one, as I mentioned, metta, uh, friendliness or loving kindness, uh, we talked about last month. Second one is karuna, compassion. The third, mudita, empathetic joy. And the fourth, upeka, equanimity. And one way we can consider these four divine abodes is maybe as um, joyful or wonderful conditions of human consciousness that allow the mind to feel some ease, some sense of being at rest, um, as if at home. And so then the question becomes, well, why are we exploring these anyway? We're devoting uh, some bit of time here to looking at these four. And there's so many reasons, and not the least of which I think is, as one of you just reminded me, is resilience. Is resilience. Is how it is that we can live our lives uh, fully and stay awake to what is. So for the sake of resilience, for the sake of courage, and, and because ultimately there is suffering. There is suffering. And one teacher, Sylvia Borstein, says that the end to suffering or happiness is an inside job. Happiness is an inside job. That was the title of one of her books, um, the idea being that the intention here is to reflect, to practice for ourselves with real life situations uh, what it's like to lean into these mind states, to see what can be discovered when we intentionally inhabit one of these dwellings or divine abodes. So in the words of the Buddha, and talking about the first two of the Brahma Viharas, he says, it would not be true to say that the cultivation of loving kindness and compassion is part of our practice. It would be true to say that the cultivation of loving kindness and compassion is all of our practice. So some would view compassion as, as maybe a bit of a variation on metta, um, but it's a little bit different from that friendliness, that relaxed friendliness that we think about with Meta, because with compassion, um, it's really hard for the mind to stay relaxed and friendly whenever it encounters something that's quite painful or unpleasant. Um, in fact, it's often normal and helpful that the mind startles with the presentation of a, an un unpleasant or painful experience or situation. And it can be an internal one or an external one, but the startle response is, is quite instinctive and it sends a signal to the brain to say, uh-oh, something's wrong here. How am I going to respond? What do I need to do? 
And sometimes the startle response is so strong that it sends the mind into confusion. And there's a period of unease when the mind tries to cope, either by accommodating that experience or distracting itself if it can't. Does anybody here have a startle response to, <laughs> to phenomena? Mine is to sound, so I startle easily by sound, so I'm well aware of this. Um, in contrast, when the mind is able to stay somewhat steady, then it has that possibility to move to um, an act or a thought or a deed uh, more immediately, one that's a wiser response rather than being uh, in that startle place of confusion. Uh, the, you've heard that the traditional Buddhist texts talk about the heart quivering in response uh, to suffering. And most of us can recount numerous times that we felt the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. Uh, we can think of so many situations, a dear friend's chronic illness, um, the pain and suffering from a natural disaster or a drug addiction or being trapped in transition between homeland and new ground or caught in gun violence because we live with uh, a hope and expectation a belief sometimes that things ought to be a certain way we plan for one thing and then inevitably something else happens. And sometimes it's not immediately clear with the long view whether or not what has just occurred is desirable. It's not readily apparent. So what do we do? We can practice with what is present, with what we are noticing, with the unwanted experience, and reflect upon our emotional response to it. What is my perspective here? You know, what, is, what am I believing in this moment? What am I feeling? What are the sensations? And to notice if it's rooted in Rooted where? Is it rooted in something that is tightening, contracting, aversive? Or is it rooted in something that allows maybe a little bit of expansiveness, a little bit of possibility for some freedom or spaciousness? Sometimes we think that we are experiencing compassion or dwelling in that uh, abode, but, but actually we're, we're a little bit to the side of it. We're in the, what's called the near enemy, which is pity in the case of compassion. Um, and each of the Brahma Viharas, as you know, have, have an, has a near enemy. Uh, for compassion, it's, it's pity, which looks a lot like compassion, but because it's acknowledging suffering, but it's sort of holding it at arm's length, you know. Um, it's, there's an awareness of the pain, but it's out there, and it carries a little bit of a tinge of aversion with it. Um, pity might, for example, think, well, it's too bad that this awful thing is happening to you. 
Because in that moment, what's happened is the mind has created a sense of separation from me and you. So it's too bad you're having that experience, but I have forgotten that in the very next moment, in fact, this or some other equally painful thing may be happening to me or my kin in any moment. So compassion really remembers the universality of suffering and offers the wish, may all beings be comforted in their suffering. So this, this part of, of responding, the quivering of the heart in response to the suffering of others is a little bit easier, I think, sometimes for us to, to understand, to get, than self-compassion. So I want to talk a little bit about self-compassion. And it seems kind of odd, perhaps, that we have trouble with self-compassion, given how much time we spend on the self. <laughs> How well am I doing? How well am I performing? How much do I have? Um, how's my job going? How about my relationships? Um, we spend a lot of time in this arena, but when it comes to self-compassion, uh, we have a little trouble with that. Really, really accepting whatever our suffering is in the moment. And again, uh, uh, some words from the Buddha. It's possible to travel the whole world in search of one who is more worthy of compassion than oneself. No such person can be found. So self-compassion has to do with how it is we're relating to our own suffering. Can we treat ourselves kindly regardless of the circumstances. Even, even the places that we feel some eh, shame about or some guilt about or some, some place that we just as soon shove off to the side because it's unpleasant. Maybe it's been there a long time and we don't just want to push it away. It's interesting that research shows that the benefits from self-compassion are as great as those of self-esteem, according to uh, Chris Germer and others. Um, he goes on to say that self-compassion can give you a sense of self-worth that is more stable than self-esteem, which is subject to rising and falling, according to your successes and your failures. Here's how one writer uh, put it into a bit of poetry. He's talking about the vicissitudes of self-esteem. And he says, when you lower yourself, the world elevates you. When you elevate yourself, the world lowers you. When you arrive at the peak of enlightenment, you will understand that your peak is the same height as your neighbor's. At the peak, you see everyone's holiness. So self-compassion means that precisely at the moment that you are feeling lonely, down, you can extend some care and some tenderness to this one. If you feel anxious or shame about how well you're doing, 
um, often it's based on a fear that we'll be seen as inadequate or stupid or shallow or boring. And in that phase, often the mind wants to move to a fixing mode, wants to figure out how I can manipulate this and make, make it look a little bit better. And self-compassion really invites us to pause and notice what's there, the full gamut, the full range of what's going on, and invites us to turn towards it a little bit so that we can actually offer a kind response to feel the real quivering of the heart and respond to ourselves much in the same way that we would respond to a dear friend, a neighbor, a loved one who is suffering. Uh, Marshall Rosenberg puts it this way. He says, an important aspect of self-compassion is to be able to empathetically hold both parts of ourselves, the self that regrets a past action and the self that took the action in the first place. So self-compassion really begins with um, an allowing allowing ourselves to see and to receive uh, that which is happening. It can be helpful to practice self-compassion explicitly when we suffer, fail, or feel inadequate. For example... um, you may have heard this in some practices when you're meditating and you don't have any comfort by relating to the breath, for example, even though that's been the instruction to pay attention to your breath. But the mind is spinning, the heart is uh, in contraction. That what we can do is simply place our hands over the heart as a way to give ourselves some self-care some nurturing, and it's a, it's a visceral response. The warmth of the hand, feel the beating of the heart. Um, so that's one possibility in terms of just offering ourselves a little self-care in any moment. And by doing so, we remind ourselves that we are not only paying attention to our experience, but we're paying loving attention to ourselves. So I'm going to invite you just to um, sit back in your seats and relax, and we'll do a, a, a short practice here with this this idea of uh, compassionate practice. So take a moment to just feel yourself sitting here, the ground beneath you, beneath the feet, the sit bones, at your back, if you're in a chair. Noticing if there's any tightness, 
Allow the body to relax. Perhaps softening the eyes. Letting the next breath be received in a softened belly. And for the moment, just feeling the breath, its natural rhythm, coming in, going out. And then perhaps noticing the mind's tendency towards distraction. It wants to get grab hold of a sound or a sensation or an idea. And just notice if the mind wants to make up a whole story out of that sensation or that thought. And if you notice this happening, that the mind's gone off to the future or back to the past. See if you can simply be aware of the planning or remembering. And gently let go and come back to the breath. And if the thoughts return or the story comes back, maybe rather than trying to push it aside, let it be the center of attention. Let it have its say. Maybe it's something along the lines of what I want is, or what I fear is, or the way it should be is. And when the distraction comes up, listen to it, allow it in. Listen to it with a tender, receptive heart. You may find yourself thinking as you listen to the story that you could even be explaining it better. So notice that. Whatever the thinking is, whether it's some personal concern or something related to the world, allow that to come into the heart Notice any surging of feelings. If 
so that the experience has a voice here. And as you are aware of the thoughts, the sensations, the feelings, notice what happens when you bring that into awareness. Not trying to figure everything out. But just helping the heart to rest in open-hearted awareness. Aware of any presumptions Let the heart rest in some spaciousness. May I have compassion for my experience. May I be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. So this following quote is uh, from a book entitled The Things You Can Only See When You Have Slowed Down. This is the first verse of uh, a poem that this man has written. If I had to summarize the entirety of most people's lives in a few words, it would be endless resistance to what is. If I had to summarize the entirety of an enlightened person's life in a few words, it would be complete acceptance of what is. So the idea that as we accept what is, our minds are relaxed and to some degree composed while the world continues to change rapidly around us. One way perhaps to have some insight into compassion is to remember the image of Kuan Yin, who is the feminist, uh, feminine Buddhist figure from Asia. 
Um, her name means, Kuan Yin means the one who hears the sounds of the world. She who is the embodiment of compassion. The listening heart that attends to all things. All aspects of life, the beautiful, the ugly, the painful. And the compassionate response, the phrases that we hear traditionally or ones you make up on your own, it doesn't matter whether we use traditional ones as in this is a moment of suffering. Suffering is part of everyone's life. May I be compassionate to myself in this moment. Traditional phrases or ones we make up. Whatever strikes us during that moment of the quivering of the heart in response to our suffering or another's suffering. Because they both, they all mean the same thing. I'm aware of the painful feelings in me as a result of what's happening here or to you. And even though I know that everything passes, now there is suffering. You know, oftentimes the the cycle is is pretty familiar. Uh, it can run from something like, "Oh, this is a pleasant and wonderful thing," but I'd really like to have that. Oh, I can't have that, so I feel sad or full of grief. This is the way it is. It can't be other. And this cycle is present whether the yearning is trivial or something tremendous. In the end... What happens is that the mind um, ceases struggling so much and can recognize that I wanted something different, but this is what is here. So there's a recognition initially, and that may be one of the hardest parts for many of us, the recognition of what's here. Because it's not easy to see or allow uh, some of the stuff that's going on inside at times. And we recognize that at some point, well, this is the way it is. So the next part would be, can I just allow it to be the way it is? And again, um, self-compassion can be a core mechanism for healing. So we spoke earlier about resilience and emotional healing can be another reason why this practice uh, is compelling because it's a way that we can stop beating up on ourselves and fighting our experience when things go wrong in our lives. And we have an opportunity to be with that which is and to re-recognize the loveliness that is present. And the loveliness and holiness in others. So uh, a final poem here by uh, Galway Kennel, Kennel, St. Francis in the Sal. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within, from self-blessing. 
Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow, and the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail. From the hard spininess spiked out in the spine down through the great broken heart to the sheer blue milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the 14 teats into the 14 mouths sucking and blowing beneath them the long, perfect loveliness of Sal. Thank you for listening, for being here, and for your practice.